listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Reading this evening, Revelation chapter 6, from the verse number 1 down through to the end of verse number 11. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he'd opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he'd opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he'd opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and Hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. And when it opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. God is the author of the scroll. Remember the scroll? The scroll that we saw in chapter 5 that speaks of the plan and purpose of God, known by God. That purpose is spoke of redemption and judgment. And so you see these seals, the second seal that spoke of war, horseman upon this red horse of the power to take peace from the earth. They should kill one another. The third seal refers to issues, again, of tragedy and economic disaster. The balances in his hand, speaking of trade and commerce, and the hugely inflated prices, verse number six, that bring about hurt and human suffering, death and war economic disaster and famine that results. And then the fourth seal, if you like bringing these things together, is the pale horse, the, the greenish-colored horse literally speaks of death and misery. The one that sits on this horse is death, and hell, that is the grave, follows with him. And power is given over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, and with death, like the disease, and with the beasts of the earth, perhaps natural disasters. What you're seeing here is you're seeing these, these three seals that speak of human catastrophe, natural disasters, death and distress on every corner. Not a world out of control, as we may think, 
but a world that is living out the effects of the fall in the sovereign plan and purpose of God. Why are these things part of the purpose of God? Now there, people will begin to enter into manners of speculation that is not necessarily helpful. We must be careful to stay within the parameters of the Word of God as we consider the purpose of these tragedies. Certainly, we have evidence in the Old Testament that at least in part helps us understand something of the purpose of these things. You think of the disasters in the Old Testament. You think of wars and famines and tra tragedies, and you see these as tools in the hand of God to judge the wickedness of nations. Undoubtedly, that's part of God's purpose. Now, when ungodly people do ungodly things, the judgment of God does not always wait finally to the last day and hell itself, but there is preliminary acts of judgment as God brings nations to their knees for all of their ungodliness. Perhaps we're living in similar days today in this very nation. Let's go and bring judgment upon the ungodliness of people around us. It's also true uh, that in the Old Testament, God brought about these disasters as part of the means whereby he sanctified his people. Now, we are not Israel, but there are similar principles at work. God is pleased to sanctify his people as they live in the midst of suffering. You turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. And you will know that, of course, in 1 Peter chapter 1, or 1 Peter as a book, Peter is dealing with the issue of suffering, particularly suffering at the hands of ungodly men. These are, these are some of the things that we're seeing in these seals. Disasters and death and the sword being yielded. And you have there 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, multicolored trials, all manner of trials, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So we're seeing this suffering the church encountered was part of the way whereby God tried their faith and purified them in a way that they come forth as gold. Chapter 4, verse number 12, Peter tells the believers, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, test you, purify you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. So all I'm saying for now is not giving a full answer to the problem of human suffering and pain, but simply to show that in Revelation chapter 6, human suffering and pain happens as part of God's sovereign purpose. And we are not helped if we deny the sovereignty of God as we seek to, in some way, understand the difficulties of living in a broken and a fallen world. And so these horsemen, they go through the world and they bring about events that are acts and suffering. Yet, the judgment of God at this point is not universal. It's not like Noah and the flood. It is upon a fourth part of the earth. You have that verse number eight. And so there is a sense in which God's judgment here is limited. These are the days of God's long suffering, his patience, not willing any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Oh yes, universal judgment will come again by fire this time when Christ returns. But in the meantime, this judgment comes upon a fourth part of the earth. Now, that does not mean that only one quarter of the earth experiences all of this suffering. 
This again is a figure of speech, it's a metaphor, indicating there is limitations to the scope of these events. Now we know, we see in human history, these events happen across the entire world. But at no point is the sense of absolute universal judgment as there was in the days of Noah. It's also worth remembering again that at the same time, whilst these horsemen are going to and fro, there is the one upon the white horse, the very first seal, who goes conquering and to conquer, that is Christ himself. And so whilst there is great suffering in the world, our blessed Saviour is bringing souls into the kingdom, causing souls to bow the knee to come and be part of his kingdom. He's conquering and he is conquering more. And so when the fifth seal is then loosed, we get another insight into a feature of the time between Christ's ascension to the throne, chapter 5, and his coming to judge, which is the sixth seal. So the fifth seal is mentioned, verse number 9, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. The fifth seal. It gives an insight. No longer the horsemen, they've been dealt with in the first four seals. This fifth seal is another sight, an insight, into what's taking place in heaven as we await the return of Christ in the sixth seal, which is verse number 12 and following. So we're looking here at the interval between Christ coming to the throne, chapter 5, and coming to judge in the sixth seal in chapter 6. And what will happen? Well, souls will lose their lives. People will die for the faithfulness that they hold to the truth of the gospel, for the word of God, and for the testimony which they held. And so tonight I want to really take some time to think about how we may learn from these faithful martyrs. What lessons can we learn as we behold the souls of them that were slain for the word of God? But before we get to those lessons, it's worth noting, please, what the apostle sees. I saw under the altar. That's an intriguing reference in itself. Under the altar, what's involved here? Again, remember, we are looking at pictures here. Not literal altars, but pictures. And so the picture with the altar could be the throne of grace. And that idea of the altar, the mercy seat, which again was the altar, that sense of the Ark of the Covenant, an altar sense of that. Or it may likely refer to Christ himself, who is, of course, the ultimate altar, the fulfillment of the altar, the brazen altar, and the altar of incense in the tabernacle. It may refer to Christ himself. And the souls, therefore, are those that are slain, and they are under the altar. More than likely, drawing from the Levitical imagery of the blood that is poured before the bottom of the altar as part of the sacrifice. The priests would take the blood and pour some of that blood before the altar as part of the burnt offering ceremony. You can see that in Leviticus chapter 4, for example. And so what you see here is the value, the value that God places upon the blood of the martyrs. It is offered to God before Christ himself, an offering, a life poured out for the glory of Christ. Didn't Paul speak of being poured out, offered for the well-being of the people of God? What a great thought it is of our lives being poured out as an offering to God. 
People struggle sometimes with purpose and reason. Why am I alive? What's it all about? And so often the struggle is, is intensely self-centered. The reason they wrestle is they fail to see their purpose is to live for the glory of God through the good of others. And so we see our lives in this sense. We are pouring out our lives before God as living sacrifices for the honor and glory of Christ's name. It's wonderful to think that the Lord God values even the imperfect service of the martyrs. Even the best of martyrs, they're only men at best, and yet God values their imperfect service, honors them as the blood of before the altar. So as we learn these lessons, please note, first of all, then the reason for their death, the reason for their death, we're told, it is for the word of God and for the testimony which they held for the Word of God and the testimony. Now, you've got to understand this in light of how it's used in Revelation itself. So turn back, please, to Revelation chapter 1. Uh, we saw in Revelation chapter 1 this same terminology used with regards to John, the servant of Christ. Verse 1 refers to his servant John, and then verse number 2, who bear record of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. And so you might read the Word of God and the testimony and think it's about your testimony, your story, your account of what God has done in your life. And yes, that's part of it, but it's not the substance of this. The reason for their death is because they have held forth the Word of God in connection with the testimony of Jesus Christ. And the word testimony there speaks of a witness statement. It is the word that we get the word martyr from. It is the witness statement of someone who is bearing testimony to the truth of Christ. And so for John, that witness statement would be, did you see the resurrected Christ? And John would say, yes, I saw the resurrected Christ. That was his witness statement. That was his testimony of the things that he saw. What is our testimony? It is of the truth of the apostles contained regarding Christ and the Word of God. We are not eyewitnesses, but we are those who bear witness in light of those who have spoken to us directly in the Word. We've their words, and we say, yes, the apostles testified to this regarding Jesus Christ. It is the Word of God and the testimony. And in particular, it is how Christ has fulfilled all the scriptures, that in his life, death, and resurrection, he's fulfilled all the word of God, proving that he is the only Savior, the only Christ, and the only Redeemer of God's elect. That's the word of God and the testimony. And to offer such a testimony, to offer such a witness, will indeed bring peril in the world. You see, note in light of this reason, note it is a matter of personal faith. Look what it says. For the word of God and for the testimony which they held. It is the word have. But it's used in a strong sense here of having and holding. And you think of the wedding vows, to have and to hold. This idea that she becomes your wife and you have her and you hold her. And so it is with this testimony. It becomes yours personally as a matter of solid conviction. This is my faith, my conviction. And so it's not what others believe. It's what I believe to be true. And so that is 
And that is the testament of the martyrs. They've come to personal faith regarding the doctrines of Christ. You've got to have that. No point in knowing a lot about Jesus, a lot about the Word of God, if you can't call it yours. That in a sense, you can say with the Apostle Paul, my gospel, my Savior, my scriptures. Now what they say is really reflects what I believe, personal faith. And yet why is it as personal? The implication here is that it was public. They die for the Word of God and for the testimony. They die at the hands of other men. And the implication, therefore, is that other men knew about their personal convictions. That it wasn't a matter of something they kept secret in their homes. Oh, I'll tell my wife, but nobody else. I'll, I won't get it outside the four walls of my home. No, it was noise abroad and well known that they held to these things as their conviction. Public. It's a dreadful thing if you believe that your faith in Christ Jesus is something you should keep secret. That Christ means so little to you that you are not pleased to make that known in the world and say, I'm a follower of Christ. That was their public faith. It's also implied that this personal faith that was public was also proclaimed. This idea of the Word of God, in light of what was said of John, he bore the Word of God. It has a sense of, of people sharing this implied that what they shared publicly was the evidence that Jesus is the Christ from his life that confirmed the Scriptures. How this conflicted with the claims of Caesar. So you're a believer, Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar. That brought them into conflict. And so they were killed for the Word of God and for the testimony which they held. It confronted Jewish unbelief. So some suffered at the hands of the Jews for the word of God and for the testimony because they were saying Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. It confronted Gentile sin and wickedness for they were saying there was an absolute standard law. Christ came in to reveal the word of God, the law of God. He is the only source of infallible morals. And so Gentile sin is rebuked. And so all of these reasons, and for more, those who held to the Word of God and the testimony, they paid with their lives. We can learn, can't we? This is not expected of certainly only some people, but of all of God's elect, that we would have that personal faith that the same point would be public and proclaimed. May God help us to see these martyrs and admire them, model them for the glory of Christ's name. No, secondly, their response. How do they respond to this? Oh, we're told, they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge your blood in them that dwell on the earth? Prayer. The sanctified saints, the souls of these martyred believers, they engage in prayer even in the state that they're in in heaven. They're a praying band. Note their faith in God. How long, O Lord, holy and true? Holy and true. They testify to the purity of God, His pristine holiness. They testify the truth of God. That is His faithfulness. What God says He does, He's a true God. He's absolutely reliable and faithful. They bear testimony in their prayer to the purity and the faithfulness of God. Their martyrdom does not deny the character of God. 
Though they've lost their lives for the faith of God, the faith of Christ, it does not check their allegiance. Now you say, well, of course, they're, they're, they're perfected saints now. But the point is that they've lost their lives and in sanctified perfection, they say, you are holy and true. How often when we as Christians suffer, we challenge the goodness of God. If I suffer, God must not be good. If I suffer, God must not be true and faithful. He must not be keeping his promises. But here the martyrs show us that even in the midst of the darkest providences, they're able to testify and bear witness to the holiness and the truthfulness of God. That's a challenging situation, isn't it? Their faith in God, which leads, of course, to their fervency in prayer. They cried with a loud voice. Now, before you misunderstand, I'm not suggesting that loud prayers are necessarily fervent prayers. Many, many fervent prayers are prayed with barely a whisper. But in this case, it is a picture that's describing the boldness and the freedom of their speech, their fervency. They have the confidence to go before God with a loud voice. Not carrying in the corner, but coming boldly to the throne of grace and crying with a loud voice, How long? Here's fervency. Does the believer have the right to go to God and say, How long? Well, yes. Psalm 74, O God, how long shall the adversary approach? Psalm 79, verse 5, How long, Lord, wilt thou be angry forever? Psalm 80, verse 4, O Lord, God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Psalm 89, verse 46, How long, Lord? Psalm 90, verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long? Psalm 94, verse 3, Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? Godly believers pray these fervent prayers, calling upon God out of faith, with this focus in the third place. The focus is that they argue for the justice of God based upon God's character. They know, they know that vengeance belongs to the Lord. The prayer is for God to do as he has promised to do. God has promised to be just and to do right in all things. And so these sanctified saints are praying, Lord, do as you've promised and bring judgment. This is not a clash with the matter of praying for your enemies, loving those that persecute you. That's not the clash here. The reality here is they're not praying for personal vengeance much. They're praying for the glory of God, avenging their blood on those that dwell on the earth. See, they believe in the justice of God. We believe in the justice of God. And we believe it's right and proper for sanctified saints to pray for God to meet justice upon those who do wickedness. We believe that. As the people of God, we believe that it's right and proper to pray for the persecuted church and to pray for God to bring justice upon the heads of those who hurt God's people. That's a right and a proper prayer. And so we, we can't join in the experience of these saints sanctified saints praying scripturally but we can join in the entreaty praying fervently while still trusting God's timing how long is not a prayer of impatience it's a prayer of pleading Lord come speedily turn things around and bring all things to right which leads in the third place having seen something of the reason for their death and their response. Note in the third place, the reassurance they are given. They are given reassurance, verse number 11, and white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season. 
rest. Rest is given to the suffering saints. We see that in Revelation chapter 14 and the verse number 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works to follow them. Refreshment in Christ. The reminder of their robes. They're given these white robes to be of Christ's righteousness and their holiness and their happiness. They're not a sanctified people. They're secure. Though they suffered, the sufferings of the present time were not worthy to be compared with the glory revealed in them. Romans chapter 8. They are those who have been saved and sanctified, and they're now given the garments that are required for them to enjoy the married supper of the Lamb. White robes, happiness in their refreshment as they suffer and now know glory together. And they're told, they're told by those who must remain. Others will still, so he says, they will wait for a little season, rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Others would still have to give their lives for the glory of God. The first century church, many of them who lost their lives for Christ's sake, others will follow, others have followed. In every phase of the history of the church, people have lost their lives for the gospel across the world, and they're still losing their lives today. It's part of God's purpose that some saints will glorify God with the very loss of their own lives. I read about these seals, and I see the reality of these events death and disease and persecution. I read these seals, I think of the events, and I trust the Bible. This is the explanation of what we see in our newspapers, on the internet. These are the things that we see before us, and the Word of God said they would come to pass. This is a true word of testimony, and yet at the same time I pray for the grace of God to trust in the Lord in all of these things, to trust in the midst of all the tragedy, to trust that God is doing all things well according to His wisdom and His will. To fight the fight of faith in these things. The scrolls written by God, unveiling the purpose of God. These scrolls are being unveiled in our times and before our eyes. And that is the God who is holy and true, that is working all things according to the counsel of His will. So let's live and pray in faith, not in doubt and discouragement. And may God be pleased to glorify His people in His Son. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.